good morning, everyone. You can hear me through this microphone, hopefully. Um, my name's Mark, if I haven't met you. Uh, I think there are some, some guests here today. It's great to have you guys. Welcome. Uh, I would say, normally I'd begin by saying uh, when I get up here that it's good to be with you and uh, that I'm looking forward to sharing God's word with you. Uh, but today's a bit of an exception to that rule. Um, if I'm being brutally honest, this is one of those times where I think I would probably prefer to not be here. Um, this might be one of those times that you as a congregation would rather be elsewhere as well, because uh, today I have to talk to you about uh, something which is not easy to talk about, uh, something which is hard and unpleasant. Uh, I'm going to be talking to you today about the final judgment. And uh, I don't want to pretend that this is going to be easy. Uh, I don't want to pretend that this is a pleasant thing for us to spend 30 minutes or whatever uh, thinking about in the light of day. Uh, but I'm not going to make any apologies for doing this. Uh, earlier this week, I had a, a post-operation visit with my knee surgeon again, went back to see him. And one of the things that he did whilst I was there was he showed me the video of my knee operation. And I don't mean like a video of the operating room, I mean like inside my knee you know they go in with these tiny cameras into your knee and film it all anyway i don't know about you but i cannot stand watching those kinds of things you see them on those tv shows about hospitals and it's just gruesome isn't it whenever one of those things comes on and you see the the insides of a person up there on the tv screen like i have to look away or leave the room and when i was watching this video of my knee operation this week it was really no different to those things that I would see on TV in those hospital shows and that sort of thing, uh, because it, it is really gross. <laughs> don't want to break the news to anybody, but looking inside your knee is disgusting. There's all this like red gooey stuff that you, you, know, you, you don't think belongs there, and see the surgeon's tools moving through this thing, carving me up like butter. I mean, it, like it made me squirm. Didn't enjoy watching it, but I forced myself to watch it. I sat there and I, I did not blink. I did not turn away from this video because this was me up on the screen here. This video that I was watching, I was implicated in this video. I, this video impacted me. It impacted my well-being in a very kind of literal way. And so facing this very unpleasant, awful reality was good for me. And can I say that what we're doing today confronting this reality of judgment and hell, uh, it's not going to be comfortable or pleasant for anyone, I don't think. Uh, but it is something that we have to do because we are implicated in it. Whether you like it or not, the Bible says that we are all heading towards this day. You will be there. And so you need to watch. Now, I realise as well, before I really kind of get stuck in here... Um, I've come to terms with the fact that some of you might decide you don't like me after this sermon. <laughs> uh, I, I'm aware of that. Uh, I'm aware also that there are people who are new or visiting here today. And so I want to say to you, if, if this is your first time at WBC, you should know that this is not the sort of topic that we often spend time talking about. We don't really tend to do this very often. Uh, what we are committed to doing, though, here at Wollongong Baptist is we are committed to dealing with the truth of the Bible, all of the truth of the Bible. At Wollongong Baptist, we don't pick and choose the bits of the Bible that we like and ignore the parts that we don't. We don't tear pages out of our Bible that would be inconvenient for us. No, we try and listen to all of the things that God says to us and figure out what they mean for our lives. 
And this is one of those really hard topics that, truth be told, would just be more convenient if it wasn't in the Bible. But what do you want me to do? <laughs> uh, I could sit up here tonight, uh, today, not stand, but sit up here and tell you lies. I could do that. I could tell you things that you don't need to worry and it will make it easy for you to go home tonight and to sleep comfortably in your beds. I could do that. Or I could tell you the truth, as uncomfortable as it might be. And I think, I trust, that people come to this church because you want to hear the truth of the Bible. And so that's what we're going to do today. We're going to think about the final judgment, even though it's uncomfortable, even though it's unpleasant. And so I think that we need to start with prayer. I think I need God's help to talk about this stuff with you. And I think you need God's help to face this stuff. So let's pray together. Loving God, in your wisdom, you have told us about the final day of judgment And God, you know the anxiety and the pain and the worry that is in my heart and is in many of our hearts as we think about this today. But God, we trust that you know what is best for us and that you wouldn't have told us about this if we didn't need to know it. And so God, please be speaking to us today by your Holy Spirit through your word. Help us to face these unpleasant truths and not to flinch from them but to recognize ourselves in them and what they mean for our lives today as we await this final day of judgment. Uh, Please, Lord, we need your help in this. So be with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Well, I think the place for us to start as we begin approaching this topic of uh, judgment, the final judgment day, is just to say right off the bat that everybody believes in this. (laughs) There'll be people who tell you they don't, But everybody believes in this idea of there needing to be a day of judgment, right? Uh, Those little children who will protest and say, well, that's not fair. What are they showing? They're showing that they believe in the need for a day of judgment, that somehow things must right themselves. You know, those university students who get their marks back and then decide to resubmit it for a, a remark because they don't think that the mark that they got was perfectly fair. What are they showing? They're showing that they believe in judgment, the importance of it. The need for it. Or maybe you're more equate with the football crowd who sit there and hurl abuse at the referee for whatever reason it might be. That crowd believes in true and fair and right judgment, don't they? And so it should not surprise us when we come to the Bible and we find the creator of the universe saying, yeah, the reason that you are hardwired that way is because there will be a day of judgment. I've set a day when I will judge all things. And so it shouldn't surprise us to see God warning us of that day today. And so as we digest this passage that Sarah read for us, uh, we're going to move pretty quickly through it. And there's really just two key points that I want you to to take away today. First of all, we're going to look at the facts about judgment. And then secondly, we're going to look at the outcome of judgment. That's where we're going. Okay, so firstly, the facts of judgment. As we read this story in Matthew's Gospel, what does Jesus want us to know about judgment? Judgment, the final judgment. Well, six quick things for you. Firstly, Jesus wants us to know that Jesus himself will be the judge. Have a read of verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his, right, his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people from one, one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Now that title there, Son of Man, You might know it's a a phrase used in the Old Testament that God uses to describe this person 
to whom he will grant all authority and power. And when you get to the Gospels, Jesus unashamedly picks up that title and he says, that's talking about me. Jesus himself, you see, will be the one who will sit on the judgment seat. And can I point out immediately that that challenges some of our perceptions about Jesus. Some of us don't see Jesus like this. Some of us have this image in our mind of, you know, infant Jesus, meek and mild, lying in the manger, goodwill to all men, that kind of stuff. Some of us have this idea of kind of hippie Jesus. You know, he just wanted people to get along, love one another, that kind of thing. Never said a bad word to anyone. Can I say, if that is our perception of Jesus, we have seriously miscalculated him. Who is the judge on the final day? It is Jesus of Nazareth. He will decide our eternal destiny. All, all of us must reckon with him. That's the first thing we're to see. Who then is going to be judged on this final day? Well, verse 32 tells us all the nations will be judged, right? This will be a universal judgment. Jesus is the Lord of all, and he summons all. Elsewhere, we're told in the Bible that when Christ returns, he will raise the dead for judgment. That picture is everyone who's ever lived. Everyone who's already died will face this judgment day. Later in this passage in verse 41, we're told that the devil and his angels will be summoned for judgment as well. You see, the point is that this judgment day is not, it's not partial. It's not local. It's universal. Everyone. Third thing Jesus wants us to see in this story is that this judgment will be unavoidable. It will be unavoidable. This is an appointment which we cannot miss. Just have a look at the way Jesus describes this and see the certainty with which these things will happen in these first few verses. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. There is no doubt here. Jesus will judge all people, whether they are sheep or goat, no exceptions. See, what this passage is trying to tell us is that there is no statute of limitations when it comes to Jesus as the judge. There are no limits to Jesus' jurisdiction. There are no exemptions to Jesus' authority. It doesn't matter how powerful or prestigious or popular or prosperous you are. The stamp on your passport will be of no consequence on that day. Your race, your creed, your colour, your religion, it does not matter when it comes to who will stand before the seat of judgment. This appointment is unavoidable. And please, please understand this. If you're a Christian here today, it means it's unavoidable for you too. Now, I need to correct an idea here because some Christians have this idea that when it comes to the day of judgment, we believe in that, but Christians, well, we're going to kind of stand off to the side, right? We're going to be onlookers, spectators, whilst Jesus judges all those wicked people. No, says Jesus. All people, sheep and goats, will stand before me. You will be summoned to face Jesus, whether you like it or not. Whether you believe it. Or not, whether you are ready for it or not, his judgment is unavoidable for every single one of us. Fourth thing Jesus tells us in this story is that he will judge us on the basis of our works. Jesus will judge us on the basis 
of our works. Now, this one, I think, might take a little bit more unpacking just to explain what Jesus means here. But do you notice in the passage that this king is going to be looking at people's lives to see whether they've done good to Jesus' brothers, to the king's brothers or sisters? You see, and he's talking about those kind of very tangible acts of love and service towards other Christians. Jesus makes that abundantly clear in the passage. You see, according to Jesus' own words, that will be what determines whether a person is a sheep or a goat on that final day. Now, uh, I know that uh, as you sit there, some of you might be thinking, that doesn't sound right, Mark. Like, I know the gospel. I know that I'm saved by grace. This seems contradictory to that idea that there's nothing that we can do. If you're feeling that, I'll just point you back to the passage here. I'm not saying anything Jesus is not saying. (laughs) If you've got a problem with what I'm saying, you've got a problem with what Jesus is saying. And not just Jesus. Really, the, the whole rest of the New Testament makes this point very clear. This is not an anomaly. Remember what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5? He says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Same point Jesus is making. Paul says it again. Romans 2 says that God will repay each person according to what they have done. We will be judged on that final day by our works. Now, I hope that the question that you are left with at this point is, well, how, does that, how can that possibly be true? How does that idea of being judged by our works square with the gospel truth that we know that we are saved by grace, right? We know that it's not because of the righteous things that we do that God saves us, but it's entirely because of God's mercy. And so how can Jesus, how can Paul, how can the New Testament make this point? We're judged by works. I hope you're thinking that. If you are, here's the answer. We are going to be judged by works, by our deeds, because they are the reliable indicator of what fills our hearts. That's what works are, that's what deeds are. They are an indicator of what fills our hearts. Remember Jesus says you can judge a tree by its fruit. Isn't that what Jesus is going to do on this final day? He's going to judge us by our fruit. Uh, I want you to think about this. Maybe this will help make it clear. If you've ever gone for a job interview somewhere, you know, an interviewer will have like a list of criteria, certain skills that they want to make sure that you have in order to get the job. And they don't just say, oh, well, do you have teamwork? Yeah, okay, tick. No, they'll ask you in that interview, give us an example of a time when you've worked well as a team. You know, they want to see proof that you have that concept that they're looking for. When I came for an interview here, it was almost exactly two years ago, uh, for one of these pastoral positions at WBC, the very first question that I got asked in my very lengthy interview, I don't know whether Simon and Rod and the other elders will remember this, the very first question that I got asked was, Mark, can you tell us the last time that you helped someone? I wasn't, wasn't prepared for that question, but it was a good question. Because if I have genuine faith in Jesus, then I should have a transformed life. I should be loving people. I should be helping people. And that's how it's going to be at the final judgment. Don't mishear me. It is absolutely by grace that you are saved through faith, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. But the heart that is full of faith will overflow with attitudes and actions which are completely different to the heart of somebody who is full of unbelief. 
Our deeds are going to testify on that final day about the genuineness or the absence of our faith. And so here's the point. Our, our deeds, they don't earn our salvation. They never can, but they do exhibit our salvation. And at the final judgment, our lives are going to be laid bare, thoughts, words, and deeds, so that it is plain for the whole universe to see whether we had saving faith or not. We are going to be judged on the basis of our works. Fifthly, fifth thing Jesus wants to tell us from this passage is that this judgment is irreversible. It's irreversible. The goats placed on his left, the sheep on his right, and there is no hope for a plea bargain here, is there? There is no court of appeals. There's no opportunity for a retrial. In the story, both groups of people do ask those questions of the king. When did we do these things for you? But you see, the judge's verdict doesn't get swayed. His verdict stands. That's because this is God acting in judgment. God, the one with perfect knowledge, and therefore the one who is perfectly able to make a right judgment of each person. Perfect judgment, irreversible judgment. Sixthly, this judgment will be personal. It's going to be personal. You will be summoned by name. I will be summoned by name. Jesus is going to judge the whole of the human race, yes, but he's not going to do it corporately. He's going to do it individually with perfect justice for every single individual. Jesus himself will be the judge. It will be universal, unavoidable. It will be on the basis of works. It will be irreversible and it will be personal. These are the facts of that last day of judgment that Jesus wants us to know. And we, we need to have this kind of a picture seared into our minds, into our imagination, as unpleasant or as uncomfortable as it may be. Because we all know, don't we, that the world scoffs at the idea of this day. You tell somebody who doesn't know Jesus that one day they will answer to him, good luck with that. But we know, don't we, that God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he's appointed. We know that God has given proof of this by raising Jesus from the dead. It is a certainty. And so we need to take the facts seriously. And so we come to our second point. On this day of judgment, when Jesus examines each one of our lives, what is going to be the outcome of judgment? Jesus is quite clear. Verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Verse 46, then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Jesus says on that day, the outcomes will be binary. There are only two outcomes on that day. Either you will be shown to be a sheep or a goat. That's it. There will be no middle ground. There is no purgatory. There is no limbo. There are no excuses. There is no escape. Either you will be welcomed into eternal life in the kingdom of God, into heaven, 
or you will be cast out into eternal punishment, into hell. That's it. Now, (laughs) I have some more bad news for you today, and it concerns the rest of my sermon. I'm not going to spend any time today talking about heaven. (laughs) I'm really sorry if uh, that disappoints you. The reason I'm not going to talk about that today at all is because we are devoting all of next week just to thinking about that glorious reality, eternal life in the kingdom of God. And honestly, I am so looking forward to doing that with you. I'm so looking forward to spending a whole week thinking about that. And Lord knows that we need some levity after a hard couple of weeks thinking about the end times. But uh, the bad news is that's next week. Today, with the rest of the time that I have left, we're just going to be thinking about the first of those options, hell. Uh, When C.S. Lewis wrote about hell, which he did a lot of, by the way, lots of his writing was about hell, uh, one of his quotes, which uh, I think is really helpful on this front, is this. I'll read it to you. It says, C.S. Lewis wrote, There is no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this, if it lay in my power. Talking about hell. But it has the full support of Scripture and especially of our Lord's own words. It has always been held by Christendom and it has the support of reason. And there's the point. (laughs) However much we might want to avoid talking about hell, Jesus won't let us. Jesus taught about hell way more than he taught about heaven. He taught about it, he wept about it, he warned of it, and he died on the cross so that we wouldn't have to experience it. And so it's crucial that we understand hell. So what does this passage teach us about hell? Well, four things, four quick things. Firstly, this passage tells us that hell is a place of ruin. It's a place of ruin. The language used of hell in this gospel is that of fire. You see that in verse 41, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire. The fire of hell in Matthew's gospel is literally the word Gehenna. It's a a word that refers to a place just south of Jerusalem, the Valley of Hinnom, which was a perpetual rubbish tip. It was a, a rubbish tip that burnt. It was on fire 24 hours a day for years. That's the reality that Jesus is trying to help us see here. Earlier in Matthew's Gospel, in chapter 13, Jesus says that the wicked will be thrown into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. These are the words that Jesus chose to try and describe this reality. Now, I don't think that we are forced to believe that hell is going to be a place of literal fire. There is some metaphor to this. But the truth is that that horrible image of excruciating agony being burned alive in a furnace, that, that image is more accurate than we care to admit. Because Jesus is not describing some medieval method of torture here. Jesus is promising that that is the, eternity, the eternal destiny for an unpardoned sinner. Ruin. Jesus also tells us here that hell is a place of isolation. It's a place of isolation. Jesus tells the goats in verse 41, depart from me. It says at the end in verse 46 that they will go away into eternal punishment. And you know, all throughout Matthew chapter 25, Jesus has been making the same point over and over again. If you're familiar with Matthew chapter 25 at all, it starts with the parable of the 10 virgins, the 10 bridesmaids waiting for the groom. And 
to the ones who are unprepared for his arrival, the bridegroom says, I never knew you. And he closes the door on them. After that, Jesus tells the parable of the talents and to the lazy servant, the one who is not prepared for his master's return, he is cast out into darkness. Friends, this, this idea of hell as a place of isolation, it corrects the idea that undoubtedly some people that we know have who say, well, I don't mind going to hell. All my mates are going to be in hell. We'll have a great old time in hell. No rules. We'll do whatever we want. No, there are, there are not going to be any friends in hell. And there is not going to be any love in hell. There is not going to be any consolation, any kindness, any camaraderie. Hell, as C.S. Lewis put it, is a place where people live at infinite distance from one another. But not just infinite distance from one another and infinite distance from God too. Hell is hell because we are isolated from God and from all of his goodness. There is none of God's goodness in hell. This is hard to understand because none of us in this room have spent one second of our lives separated from the goodness of God. I hope you know that. Even if you don't believe in God, you're living in his world and he's being exceptionally kind to you. Every good thing that you experience in your life, food and rest and relationships and beauty and whatever else, they're all gifts from the creator. And in hell, when we are separated from him, there will be none of his goodness because God will not be there. Now, that's a terrifying thought. Hell is a place where we are totally isolated. Jesus tells us as well that hell is a place of retribution. See, he uses this language in in this passage of eternal punishment. That's what's going to be in hell. Hell is going to be the place where people are paid back for the infinite sin of disrespecting and distrusting and disobeying an infinite God. Hell is not a place where God is going to send people for a little bit of rehab, for some correctional discipline. No, when, when God sends people to hell, he is balancing the moral scales of the universe. In, in hell, God is giving people the just punishment for their crimes. Hell is a place of retribution. And lastly, hell is eternal. There is no end to hell. Uh, some people in our world have this idea that hell will come to an end, that hell will burn out after a while, that people in hell will simply cease to exist after a little while. Can I tell you that that idea simply cannot be squared with this passage? It's completely incompatible. Have a look there in your Bibles if you've got them open at verse 46 and notice the, the deliberate parallel that Jesus says there. One group will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. You see, hell is as permanent as heaven. It will never, ever end. In the same way that eternal life will go on forever, forever, eternal punishment will go on forever too. Here then is the doctrine of hell according to Jesus. Ruin, isolation, retribution without end. Uh, Jonathan Edwards was a famous preacher in the 18th century in America uh, he's famous for a lot of things, but one of the things he was famous for was sermons that went on at great length, describing in great detail uh, 
visions and images of hell. They're worth your time to read, to track down and read them if you ever feel uh, like getting depressed. Uh, they're, they're tough to read. They're, they are tough to read. And so I just want to read you just a few lines from one of his sermons, which will probably be more than enough. Uh, this is a sermon that Jonathan Edwards preached describing the reality of hell. And after this sermon, many, many people turned to Christ for salvation. This is what he wrote. Consider what it is to suffer extreme torment forever and ever. To suffer it day and night. From one day to another. From one year to another. From one age to another. From one thousand ages to another. And so on, adding age to age and thousands to thousands. In pain. In wailing and lamenting. Groaning and shrieking and gnashing your teeth with your souls full of dreadful grief and amazement, with your bodies full of racking torture, without any possibility of getting ease, without any possibility of moving God to pity by your cries, without any possibility of hiding yourselves from him, without any possibility of diverting your thoughts from your pain. Consider how dreadful despair will be in such torment. To know, assuredly, that you never, never shall be delivered from them. To have no hope. Friends, I don't know how to put this any stronger. It is not exaggeration to say that hell is the worst reality that we can imagine and that the reality of hell goes well beyond our imagining. And this is the future for those who don't trust and obey Jesus. Now, if you're someone here today who is a visitor, if you're a guest, if you are not a Christian here today, someone who doesn't trust and obey Jesus, then can I take a guess at what you're feeling right now? I imagine that you're probably sitting there and thinking, Mark, you're just trying to scare me. Jesus, you're just trying to scare me. All this kind of fire and brimstone kind of stuff. You're just trying to put the fear of God into me. I don't like that. You're just trying to frighten me. And Can I say honestly, yes? I am. That is what I'm trying to do, in a sense. <laughs> because being frightened of hell, it's the correct response that you should feel in light of its, its truth. And, and if fear is what it takes for you to act so that you avoid hell, then so be it. Jesus was not above using fear to motivate us to action. And we are not above it either. In fact, you are not above using fear to motivate people to action. It's something that our world does all the time. I was filling up my car today, uh, this week getting petrol and uh, at the petrol pump there was a TV screen there playing some ads and stuff whilst I waited. And one of the ads that came on was a fire safety ad showing all these pictures of fire devastating people's properties and that sort of thing. And they had chosen pictures in this ad very deliberately. Every single picture had some kind of a children's toy, maybe a children's bike, something like that, melted into the ground, burning on fire. What is that ad doing if not trying to help us to fear this possible reality of fire? That's what, what it is doing. And at the end of this ad, there was a very interesting slogan that came up. It said, fire has a plan, do you? Good question. And then the tagline underneath it, prepare, act, survive. Prepare, act, survive. 
Fear should prompt you to prepare, act, and survive in in the face of coming danger. And it's no different with the Bible's teaching about hell. Jesus wants to tell us things like this so that we would take action and avoid hell, that we would survive. Jesus wants us to turn to him, the one who suffered hell, the one who suffered God's wrath being poured onto him so that we don't have to suffer that for eternity so that we can avoid hell. That is Jesus' point in telling us this. And can I remind you, as we've seen today, there are no second chances with this stuff. There are no second chances after this life. God gives people this life to make a decision about him, and then he treats us as adults, and he gives us what we choose, either life with him or life without him for eternity. If you, if you sit here today and you say, I don't want to have anything to do with God. I don't want God in my life at all. Please understand that God will, will honor that choice. He will give you what you want. And he will make you endure that for eternity. So please do not sit here today and make the mistake of thinking that hell will be tolerable. Hell will be enjoyable. That would be a, a gross misunderstanding of Jesus' teachings. And please, please know that until that final day, hell is avoidable for every single person. Nobody need go to hell. Jesus wants you to turn to him, put your trust in him, and be saved. Now, there's another sort of group of people here today, and that is a Christian group of people, people who already trust and obey Jesus and his gospel. And to you, as, as I finish here, I want to say that I know that thinking about this stuff is hard. I know that it's unpleasant. But friends, we have to force ourselves to do this. And I actually think that we have to force ourselves to do this more frequently than we currently do. Because unless we all feel the pain of this reality, the pain that people that we know and love are facing this for eternity, unless you feel that, you will not speak up. You won't tell people about Jesus. You know, if you, if you saw someone that you loved heading towards certain danger in any other context, you would do something, wouldn't you? It's unthinkable to imagine your child, you know, running out onto the motorway and you just sort of sitting back and going, well, I don't want to spoil their fun, so I'll just let them do what they want. It's unthinkable if somebody you loved was about to drink something poisonous for you to just bite your tongue and go, oh, well... I won't tell them because it would be socially awkward for me to tell them that they've made a wrong choice. It's it's crazy. You wouldn't do that in any other sphere of life. And so how much more must we speak up? Must we tell people about the reality of God's final judgment? You see, the problem is that for many of us, we're just living as functional atheists. You know, we, we say that we believe hell is real and that it's eternal. We say that we trust Jesus. We could... We come to church on Sunday and we sing about the fact that Jesus is the only way to escape this. And then Monday to Saturday, we just live as if that wasn't the case. In our offices, at our homes with people who don't trust Jesus, when when we're visiting friends who are rejecting Jesus, we shrug our shoulders. We live as if they're not going to die. We live as if they're not about to face an eternity without God in hell. And so we don't say anything. Some of the most striking and convicting words that I've ever heard 
about this were from someone who's not a Christian, uh, but he really gets the point. His name is Penn Gillette. He's a famous magician from America. You might have heard these words before. They do get quoted pretty frequently, but I want to read them to you. Here's what Penn Gillette said about evangelism or about what he calls proselytism. He says, I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell, and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life, and you think that it's really not worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? I mean, if I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you, and you didn't believe that the truck was bearing down on you, there is a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. See, friends, it's all about love, isn't it? That's the point that he's making. The truth is that our willingness to tell somebody the gospel, that's a test of our love for them. My willingness to tell any single person about the gospel is a test of my love for them. Do I love them enough to speak up? Or do I love other things instead? Do I love myself more than I love them? I love my own comfort, my own peace of mind. I love the the security of having somebody respect me. I love that more than I love them. Our willingness to speak the gospel is a test of our love for people. And I want to I want to be honest with you, uh, friends, that this has been a really hard week for me to live with that truth hanging over my head. God has really convicted me about this this week, and uh, I I knew that I was going to be standing sitting up here, got to get that right, sitting up here uh, today, and urging you to urgently speak about Jesus, regardless of whatever it costs you. I knew I was going to be doing that. And so I knew that I couldn't do this in good faith without following my own advice. And so I I made a decision earlier this week that I needed to ring my family, my family who are not Christians, none of them are, and I needed to tell them again, as I have done many times before, that I love them and that I want them to be ready for this day of Jesus' return. And that the only way for them to be ready is to put their trust in Jesus. And so I did, I did that this week. I, I did that on Friday. I rang my family and it was really hard. And it was really awkward. And it was really sad for me because they didn't put their trust in Jesus. But if I love these people, if I am convinced of the truth of what Jesus is telling me here, how can I do anything less than that? I, I don't want my family to stand there on that final day when they come to meet their maker and for them to turn to me and say, Mark, if you knew this day was coming, why didn't you tell us? And so what I want to do is I just want to challenge you today. Do you love the people in your life enough to tell them about Jesus and about the day of God's judgment? That's really what it comes down to. Do you love the people in your life enough to tell them about Jesus and the day of God's judgment? Uh, Friends, we can justify to ourselves in countless ways all of the reasons why we keep silent about Jesus. You know, we can can justify it and say, well, it'd be awkward. We can justify it and say, well, I've, I've tried it before. We can justify it and say, well, you know, I just don't know quite the right words to say for this person. 
But haven't we seen today that every single one of us on that final day is going to stand before God and our lives are going to be laid bare and all of the excuses that we've made about this stuff, whether, whether it's out of fear or whether it's out of pride, whether it's out of laziness, whatever the reason will be, it will be laid bare for God and for the whole world to see why we have not shared the gospel with people. Now, we say that we are a church that wants to make Jesus known. That is so central to who we are, our identity as Wollongong Baptists, right? Now, I, I truly believe that the good news of the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ crucified for our sin and resurrected to new life, that that message has the power to save people. I truly believe that. Just this last week, uh, a young guy, he's been coming to the church in the evening at 6 p.m. He put his trust in Jesus. He gave his life to Christ. The gospel really does save people. But I'll tell you something else I also truly believe, and that's that unless we feel the weight of this reality, unless we are willing to get uncomfortable and to be honest and to admit to ourselves that those people that we love that God is not happy with them and that on that final day he will judge them to hell for eternity unless we are willing to face that uncomfortable reality and just watch that horror, then we're just going to sit here. We're not going to speak. And so that's what, <laughs> this is all I want to say today. I'm finished. I just want you to sit with that truth for a little while. And uh, I'm going to pray to close. And it's going to be a pretty sparse kind of a prayer. Uh, and that's because I want you to be praying, doing some business with God and talking to God about where you're at and about the people in your life that you need to share the message of Jesus with. So I'm going to pray that now and then we'll go on with our service. Almighty God, thank you that you have chosen to reveal to us these matters about the end and this day of judgment. God, it would be so much worse for us to be unaware and to come to that day unprepared. And so we do thank you, Father, that as hard as this is to, to think about, it's better that we know. God, we want to confess to you now that there are so many things holding us back from boldly speaking about Jesus not least of all, our wavering belief in the reality of hell. And so, God, we just want to spend some time now confessing those things to you in the silence of our hearts and asking you, please, to overcome whatever barriers they may be. And God, you know the people in our lives who we love and for whom our hearts break, the ones who don't yet trust your son, Jesus. God, please pour out your mercy on them. We cannot convince them of the truth of these things. Only your spirit can do that. So please work through the words that we speak to save many people. God, we want to name these people before you now and ask for your blessing on them.
God, please remind us as we wrestle with this painful reality. Remind us of the truth that our salvation was won for us by Christ. The truth that your love for us is unfailing and that we are your children. Remind us of this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.